1: I want you to imagine with me today a husband and wife, a couple just like any that you might know. They've been married for several years, they have several kids. They send the best looking Christmas cards year after year. They stay on your fridge at least for a few weeks. Uh, This couple that most anybody would admire and look up to, of course, they're busy. They're busy with life, with jobs. They got bills to pay. Their kids' schedules require a lot of time and energy. And in the midst of all that, one day, the wife looks at her husband and asks an all important question Do you still love me? The husband is taken back. He can tell she's sincere. What do you mean? He says, Of course. Of course, I love you. I take out the garbage before I'm asked. I cut the grass. I even, I've learned to help get dinner ready. I'm not really good at that, but I've learned, right? And I I pick up the kids from school. I even helped you last weekend with that yard sale that you wanted to do. Of course, I love you. And after a moment, he can tell she's not convinced. And so he adds this, I told you on our wedding day that I loved you. And if it ever changes, I promise I'll let you know. Now, Not everyone in the room is married. No one in the room is a relationship expert. But come on, there's somebody in the room that knows that's not the right answer, right? Can I get an amen there? Some of you are shaking your head. No, 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 right? This husband, this husband was likely very sincere in his acts of service. He's involved and supportive and engaged. All of these things may have been motivated by love, but none of them are a replacement for a true expression of heart connection of love. The love that was once passionate and sincere. Not a love of duty or expressed through tasks and responsibilities, but a love that's real. A love that's alive. A love that looks like, like God himself who, who is love. So today, today church family, we're going to look at a text that speaks to a group of believers about the love they once had. A love that was once alive and real, but now it's been replaced. And so as we open the text today, we ask ourselves this question, where do we find ourselves in this text? What is it that the Lord is speaking to us, his church? So we continue today. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. If you're new or visiting or you weren't here last week, today we continue in a series uh, on the book of Revelation, but specifically the seven churches. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there are seven letters... Written to seven specific churches in the Asia Minor region in the year uh, A.D. 90. And these are not just any words. This is a revelation of Jesus. Uh, The Apostle John wrote these words down. But these, in my book, are red letters throughout because this is Jesus. His revelation being revealed and now recorded. So we believe that the book of Revelation is valuable for us today. As we read these words, we understand these words were written historically to a church that existed then. But we believe these words are relevant now. These words are speaking now that God's word has something to say to us today. And so we're just asking that question. God, what are you saying to us, your church, through your word? And so today we begin with the first letter in Revelation 2 to the church in Ephesus. We begin in verse 1. It says this, Revelation chapter 2. Uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among The seven golden lampstands. I want to pause and just unpack that for a minute before we get to the rest of the letter. Remember, last week in Revelation 1, if you weren't here, we unpacked Revelation chapter 1 last week. Uh, Go back and watch or listen. Uh, We'd love for you to catch up so you can engage with us step by step throughout the series. But we read that the seven stars... Represent the seven angels, the angels of the church. And the seven lampstands represent the seven specific churches. And so what do we see right here at the very beginning of the letter? We see these images uh, reinforce the authority of Jesus Christ. The authority. Why? Because he holds, Jesus holds the seven stars. And his presence in the church as he walks In the midst of the lampstands, right? So we just sang, what did we just sing a second ago? Your name is the highest and your name is the greatest and your name stands above them all. This is a picture of that. It's Jesus. It's Jesus because revelation, we learned last week, is a book of Christ. Revelation is a book of Jesus. And throughout each letter, we see that clearly. And so I just pause to recognize here at the beginning of this letter, it's Jesus. So let's see what the Lord says in in verse 2. It says this. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. As we unpack this, I want to unpack and understand a little bit more. It's helpful for you to know more about Ephesus If this is a letter being written to a specific church in Ephesus, a real place and real people, it's helpful for us to understand a little bit more about those people, about that church. So Ephesus was one of the most influential cities in the Roman world. It it was a melting pot of culture, of religious influence. There was a temple there, a pagan temple for the goddess uh, Diana. And that was important because at that temple, that that goddess promoted idolatry and sexual immorality as a form of worship. That was how you worshipped this goddess. And so uh, it was a part of everyday life in this pagan culture, idolatry, sexual immorality, which isn't that different from today when sexuality is kind of a twisted religion for many people. We know a lot about Ephesus, though, because of your Bible, because of throughout the New Testament, we know that Paul founded the church in Ephesus, and he wrote a letter to the Ephesians. That should sound familiar, right? That's the same church Paul was writing to 40 years earlier. And Paul also wrote two letters, First and Second Timothy, to a young pastor, Timothy, who was pastoring where? In Ephesus. So your Bibles, your New Testament has a lot to say about Ephesus and this place and now Jesus, here, at the turn of the century, is speaking to the church, and he has a lot of good things to say. Look, in verse 2 and 3, what he's saying, you work hard. You persevere in the face of hardship. That example of you turning from false prophets, good job. Good job, church. Your city is inundated with outside influences. It's guided by idolatry and sexual immorality, but, but you've not given up even when it's tough. Good Job church. And if you stop in verse 3, this sounds like a celebration. This sounds like a love note to the church. Except then we get to verse 4. And that's the turning point for our letter today. Look at with me in in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 2. Yet, these are the words of Jesus: yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had. At first, Jesus is saying, in spite of all your hard work, in spite of perseverance, you have forsaken what's most important. The love you once had, burning deep inside, it's gone. It's gone. But the implication here isn't that they lost it. Like it just disappeared by accident. Look again, the word forsaken here, forsaken communicates intentional action, intentional choice. You intentionally made a choice and another choice and another choice and another choice. And and now the love that you once had is gone. Have you done good things? Yep. Good job, church. Have you persevered even when it's hard? Yeah, good job, church. Outwardly, you've done so many good things, but you're missing the heart, what matters most. Continue reading with me the rest of the letter. Verse 5, consider, Jesus says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent. Do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You... Hate the practices of the Nicoletians, which I also hate. This is likely Jesus referring back to verses 2 and 3. Then verse 7, Jesus says this, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord for us today. First love. First love. Love, in my copy of scripture, the love you had at first, that can conjure up all kinds of images in our mind. But one of the most powerful images in my mind, because it's personal to me, is the day I married Lauren. I remember that day vividly. I was standing there in front of the church and everybody else that was involved was kind of getting in their places and doing their part. And I love all them. I'm so glad they were there. But there was one person that I was waiting for that day I wanted to see Lauren, (laughs) and when the doors opened and she started walking down the aisle to me, man, uh, there was already a fire there that had been kindled, but it was raging in my heart that day of love, of passion for her, for her. She started walking towards me. Some of you are like, we still can't believe that, Pastor. I know, she started walking towards me, and I'm just telling you in that moment, my heart was overwhelmed with love. But the truth is, anyone with a deep and meaningful life-giving relationship, you know, it extends beyond emotions. The Lord gives us emotions. That's good. We love that. Emotions aren't bad. What we're talking about today is not just about emotion. This idea of first love can't just be about how you feel, because sometimes our feelings deceive us. And you know that. You know that. You know that deep and passionate commitment is involved in the relationships that matter most to you. You know that. The people in your life that you love deeply, you feel love to them, but you love them because you're committed to them. And that commitment has lived out moment by moment and day by day through hard things, through good things, choice after choice. It can't just be about feelings and emotions, it's it's about commitment and passion. This was demonstrated so well for me through a story. Author and business leader Fred Smith wrote this story. I thought it communicated it really powerfully. He says this, One of my treasured memories comes from a donut shop in Grand Saline, Texas. There was a young farm couple sitting at the table next to me. He was wearing overalls and she had on her gingham dress. After finishing their donuts, he got up to pay the bill and I noticed she didn't get up to follow him. But then he came back and stood in front of her. She put her arms around his neck and he lifted her up, revealing that she was wearing a full body brace. He lifted her out of her chair, backed out the front door to the pickup truck with her hanging around his neck. As he gently put her in the truck, everyone in the shop stopped and watched. No one said anything until a waitress remarked, almost reverently, he took his vows seriously commitment right commitment the kind of love we're talking about it is feelings and emotions that are beautiful but it is a deep seated commitment and the truth is the truth is it's hard for us to draw an exact parallel in our everyday lives no matter what example we come up with it falls short to what we're talking about here but look again with me the implication is not that the church suddenly fell out of love with Jesus The implication is not that everything was going great until one day suddenly it wasn't. The implication is that the church has forsaken its first love. The love for Christ poured out into their hearts and the love of Christ poured out through their lives had been forsaken. And as I read these words from Revelation 2, as I've hung out all week in these words this letter from the mouth of Jesus, I thought a lot about you. And I thought a lot about us. You don't study the book of Revelation. You don't study the letters to the church in Revelation without being prepared as a church to ask ourselves where we find ourselves in these letters, in the story of God. To be the church that's alive today in 2023 means we measure ourselves against these words, the words of Jesus to the church. I thought, about, I thought about Ephesus, and I'm not a biblical expert at all, but I just thought about what I know, what I've studied. I thought about Ephesus as being defined by their hard work and their faithfulness, and I thought about, I thought about us. I thought about our church. I thought about the many ways, more than I can count, more than I even have gotten to experience, but the many ways— that God has blessed this church, that we've been able to be a part of something incredible. I thought about the vital ministries that we have in our church. I thought about the faithful team of pastors and staff that we're blessed to have at this church. I thought about the campuses that we have today or at any given day of a week. There's ministry happening in and through our local church somewhere in the Shenandoah Valley we're making an impact on our community and I believe our community is different because of us. I thought about all of that. But yet when I arrive at Revelation two verse four, it sends a chill down my spine. Look at it again with me. The words of Jesus, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. These words send a chill down my spine, and I think they should. I think for any pastor, but really anyone who claims faith in Christ, as you read these words, it should cause you to stop. Really stop. And so as I was working on the message and doing that, I got to a point where I just had to stop. All week, I've just, I've had to stop. I love this church. I've had the privilege of having a front row seat to see many of the good things, not all, but many of the good things that God has done and is doing through this church. But I shudder to think about ever being part of a church where the gospel is seen as an obligation, as a duty, rather than a calling compelled by love. And so I stopped in my tracks and I said, Oh Jesus, may it never be so with us. May we never be the church of Ephesus where people could look and say, "Wow, well, look at all the good things they're doing. Look at all that they accomplish. Look at the good people, and, and, and they're so busy doing so many things. Isn't that incredible? But at the heart, we've lost our true passion, our first love. You know, uh, if you know me at all, you know that for me, studying the text, studying God's word is really wrestling with questions. I think any good text or any text that we wrestle with leads to really good questions. And so there's one question for me above all that I had to wrestle with as I studied this text and as I thought about us and I thought about uh, Ephesus and I, I asked the Lord, what is it that he wants to say to us? The question that kept coming to my mind was this, how How is it possible that a church could appear so effective and faithful, so faithful that Jesus commends them? He starts by saying some good things. How is it possible that a church can be like that yet miss what matters most? How could it be possible for a church like us to do really good things in the name of Jesus yet miss what matters most? How is that possible? If it's not something that just happens, again, the implication of the text is that they forsook, they have they, they, they forsaken their first love. It was a choice, a decision, not something that just haphazardly happened. So how does a church, a group of believers, go from having a deep love to forsaking it entirely? How does that happen? I had to pray about that. I had to bring that before the Lord. I had to seek out his word, and as I did, I was reminded of a series of messages I got the privilege of preaching at this church a couple years ago. I know it was the Lord because I can hardly remember what I preached last Sunday, much less a couple years ago. But as I was studying and preparing, the Lord brought to mind a series of messages that I preached from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews. And I'm I'm not going to put it on the screen, but if you go to the book of Hebrews, what's interesting about Hebrews is Hebrews chapter 1 begins a little bit like Revelation 1. I mean, I know it's totally different books, totally different purpose, but Hebrews 1 begins talking all about Jesus and magnifying and glorifying and lifting up Jesus and celebrating and worshiping Jesus. And then when you get to Hebrews chapter 2, and it was Hebrews 2 verse 1 that really the Lord brought to my mind. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 says this. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore. I say that word therefore because the author is referring to everything he said in chapter 1. So because of Jesus, and because of all that he's done, and because of the hope that we have in him, because our lives are founded on the truth of who he is, therefore, we must pay careful attention so that we do Not drift away. That's how Hebrews begins. It's all about Jesus. All about remembering who Jesus was. And then, as chapter 2 begins, we must pay careful attention so that we don't drift away. I start thinking about that word drift. Drifting. How? (laughs) How? How did the church in Ephesus forsake their first love? I would venture to say it didn't happen all at once. It didn't just happen in one moment, in one decision. I would venture to say that that church, despite all of their faithfulness and the good things they were doing, they began to drift moment by moment by moment. It was not a singular moment, maybe a series of moments, a process of drifting, doing ministry, but drifting a little bit away from the heart behind why they do what they do. Drifting into duty instead of devotion. Drifting into religion instead of relationship. Drifting moment by moment, drifting away. Until one day, the revelation of Jesus says, you have forsaken Your first love. To me, drifting implies many things, but two things. And so if you'll bear with me for a minute, I I think this has incredible application for us today. Drifting implies two things, both important. It speaks to focus, and it speaks to urgency. I think it has to speak to both. If it only speaks to one and not the other, I think we miss the implication of what God's word is warning us about in this idea of drifting. Focus, focus. What does that mean to the church in Ephesus? What does that mean to us? Focus not on the acts themselves. Look at all the good things we're doing. Look at all the great ministries we have. Look at all the great people we have serving. Focus not on the acts themselves, but on the motivation behind them. A deep love for our Savior Focus helps us remember the why. We don't get lost in a list of do's and don'ts. We remember, we focus on the heart behind it. Focus keeps us anchored to what is true and what is best and what matters most of all. But not just focus, right? I think drifting speaks to this idea of urgency. Both matter. Both matter. The letter to the Ephesians ends by pointing us to the end. The tree of life. The eternal reward in heaven. Jesus speaking to the church and he wants them to have urgency. He wants them to know this matters. This has eternal consequences. Urgency because Christ will return. If we don't know anything else in Revelation, we know the promise. Christ is going to return. So this idea of urgency... Standing still in the kingdom of God is not an option. It's not an option to stand still because standing still in the kingdom of God means you start to drift. Maybe you don't see it at first. Maybe you don't realize it at first. Maybe it's subtle, but slowly over time, just like a a ship, right, who turns just one degree off course. At first, it's hardly perceivable until you go further and further and further off course. Drifting is just like that, and I think that's the word to the church in Ephesus as Jesus stands before them, how far you have drifted from what truly matters. I, I want to suggest today, I don't have these on the screen, but I want to suggest five, five signs of a drifting church. This likely could have been true in the church of Ephesus, and, and oh, Lord forbid this would ever be true of us. I only have five, there could be more, but Number one, five signs of a drifting church. Number one, there's a loss of focus on the love of God expressed through faithfulness to the gospel. There's a loss of focus on God's love for us, on his love that compels us to serve and love and sacrifice for others. Number two, a sense of urgency is replaced by a sense of routine or going through the motion. A drifting church doesn't have a sense of urgency. They just have a sense of obligation, of duty. This is what we have to do. This is what we've always done. There's not passion. There's not urgency behind it. Number three, distraction. The church is distracted or focused far more on being entertained. Busyness. Busyness has overtaken their focus. Number four, the word of God is watered down. That's part of drifting, isn't it? That we grab hold of the parts of the word that we like, that make us feel good, that we're comfortable, that we know what to do with, and the parts that we don't, we just push those aside in subtle ways. What's the fruit of a church that waters down the word of God? They just start to drift. Finally, uh, signs of a drifting church is, this is the old statistic, right? 20% of the people do 80% of the ministry. What does that mean? That means there's no urgency in the church for everyone to be a part, for everyone to do what they can because there's focus and there's urgency. The bottom line I have on the screen for us today that I want to ask you, it's a question. The question today is not a question of what do you do. The question is whom do you love? I, I'm not saying, church, what we do doesn't matter. But if that's all that matters, or if that's, that's what matters most to us, and we've forsaken, we've forsaken our first love. With a lack of focus and a lack of urgency, we've started to drift away from the heart Matters most, the love of God. So today, the question is not what do you do. The question is who, who do you love? Who do you love? The band uh, is going to come, and they're going to help. Thanks, band, for coming. Now, if you would. I don't know what you think about when you think about the letter to the church in Ephesus. But I I just, I thought about us so much. I guess that's my job as the pastor. But if you're a part of this church, I want to invite you today to take these words that we've heard and now begin to make them personal for us. Because there's a lot about our world we don't understand. And there's a lot we may never understand. But the truth is God has placed us here as his church for such a time as this. I don't totally understand that, but I believe, look around, we're here, and I believe that if the Lord wanted to be done with you, or with me, or with this church, he could have been, but here we are. So today, as I, as I read these words, words of warning out of the mouth of Jesus, I want to take seriously his call to be a church. That refuses to settle, that refuses to drift, that refuses to lose sight of what's most important. I want to be a church that refuses to forsake what matters the most. I can't be a part of a church like that. I won't. How about you? How about you? I'm telling you, spending seven weeks looking at the seven churches is going to challenge us as a church. But I believe the Lord wants to purify us. He wants us to be the church, his church, the church that he can use, the church that he can bless. That's the kind of church I want to be. So I'm going to invite you. Would you stand to your feet and would you bow your heads? I want to pray, but I want to invite you to just stand right at your seat while we pray today. I want to invite you to just change your posture. We've been able to sit and listen, hear the word. But now I want to invite you to stand. We're going to sing and worship in a minute, but I just felt led. And I I know every week we pray, right? But I just felt led as I was preparing these words. I felt like the Lord say, invite the church to pray. And again, you know, well, we pray every week, Pastor. It's true. But today, I just, I just felt led to invite some of us in the room. We want to pray for us. We want to pray for our hearts that we would not forsake the first love, that we wouldn't lose the passion and the fire. But we also want to pray for our church. I believe some of us today want to stand in the gap for this church. That we want to say, Lord, not on our watch. We're not going to be that church. We're not going to be the church that gets lost in what we do and in duty and religion. And we forsake what matters the most, not on our watch. And so today I just feel led to pray in some very specific ways. I feel led to invite some people that would want to come forward to pray around an altar. There's nothing uh, magical about an altar. It's just a place of commitment. It's a place of prayer. Biblically, we see that. And so today, maybe you want to come kneel at an altar with me. Maybe you can't kneel and you want to stand. That's okay. Maybe you can't stand. You want to just come sit up front. And and in doing so, you just want to commit to say, God, I don't want to forsake my first love and I want to stand in the gap for this church. I believe that this message and this word matters too much. And so maybe you want to join me in prayer. Maybe some of our pastors and our staff and our board that are here today would just want to join me. I'm going to pray in a minute alongside you at the front. And maybe you would just want to come with me to stand in the gap to say, Lord, may it not be so with us. May we not be a church that loses sight of what matters most. May we never drift and forsake the first love. Maybe there's others today, life group leaders. Young generations, old generations, maybe you would just want to join me in a prayer of commitment today. A prayer that just says, oh God, help me to see what matters most. Help me to return to the passion that I once had. Burn deep within me a love for your church. Is there anyone else this morning that would just want to come and stand or kneel And say, Lord, pour out your spirit on me. Pour out your spirit on our church. We want to be a people. We want to be a people desperate for you, Lord. We want to be a people who hear your voice and respond in obedience, Lord. Forgive us and help us, lead us, guide us. We want to be the church that you can use. We want to be the church that you can bless. So we humble ourselves and come before you in prayer. Lord, we come. We pray. We seek you around these altars and throughout this auditorium. We seek you. We pray for forgiveness. We pray repentance. We seek repentance if there are things in our lives where we've begun to drift and we stand in the gap and say, Lord, for this church, for this church we will be faithful. We will love you. We will refuse to forsake the love that matters most. Come speak now as we worship. Come be near to us. We humble ourselves enough to hear from you and respond in obedience. So come be close now, we pray in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.